Hello and welcome to episode 42 of the Asian Cinema Film Club. I'm your host as always, Edward Jones, and joining me is my co-host, the Professor Mr. Stephen Palmer. Hello everybody. On tonight's show we're going to be looking at Peppermint Candy from the greatest film year of all time, 1999. But is this a film which lives up to the reputation that this year holds? We'll be finding out a bit later in the show, but before we obviously get into that, it's uh, obviously time to ask what you've been watching, and I don't know about yourself, Stephen, but I've really just failed to watch anything, really. I keep having these grand aspirations of watching things, and then I've had this cold, and it's just not happened at all. Well, it's lucky then, that clearly my New Year's resolution of not saying that so far this this year (laughs) is working, because I've watched a couple of things. Oh, exciting. Um, so, firstly, I finally got to see Parasite, um, Bong Joon-ho's okay. Oscar-nominated, um, let's just call it film for now, um, that I don't really want to spoil it for anyone, although I'm pretty certain, other than yourself, most of our audience has probably seen it. Um, so I keep getting told. I mean, people are saying they've seen it. I've, I've yet. To, I've not watched a trailer. I've not looked at a synopsis. I'm going to be going into a completely blind when it's released a couple of weeks from now here in the UK, which seems really bizarre for such a highly rated movie. You would have thought that they would have rushed that thing out like a rocket on rails, but no, they're just like, oh, we'll take our time in the UK. Yeah, you'd have thought it had got a, Janu- fine. A, a January the first one, but um, so. Is it any good? I like Bong Joon-ho films. Uh, I know you don't care for The Host, but I really love Mother, for example. Um, I yeah. quite like The Host, but it's but but the, I think there are films of his which are good and films of his which are okay. But okay is the worst I've ever seen him do. Um, so Parasite, again, not wanting to spoil it too much. I won't go through a synopsis of the plot. It's, as far as I'm concerned, pretty good. Is it is it worthy of being one of ten foreign language films ever to be nominated for Best Picture? Is it worthy of being, I think, the first Korean film to go that way? Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> it's, it's 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 really good. Don't get me wrong. It's got really good performances. Yeah. It's a black comedy. It's kind of funny, um, in a in a very dark way. It's kind of interesting in what he wants to talk about in terms of the society's haves and have nots. Um, but I'm not convinced it knocks it out of the park and I'm really, really surprised of all the Korean films released in the last 30 years why this one has been given such special attention. Has it just ridden a wave of this sort of second Hallyu Korean wave which is all part of K-pop and K-dramas being really popular? Has it just hit some kind of moment in time that all the stars have aligned and it's um and 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 it and it's been it's resonated with people i don't know like i say it's really good but is it that good <laughs> it's, it's going to be my short um short synopsis of it but i'm sure we will talk about it in more depth when when you sir get round to watching it the other film i wanted to mention that i've seen is the new Takashi Miike film, First Love, which is due out on Valentine's Day here in the UK, I suspect for one day only. I'm sure it's not uh, a major release. That seems to be what happens with Takashi Miike films. Um, So I've got got to review it. I'll 
going to write it up. It'll be at the uh, in their own league website because I've managed to grab a Japanese film <laughs> to do it. Um, it is again without spoiling it too much. It's not Mike's best. It's not Mike's worst. It's a it's a yakuza drama with a lot of black comedy around um, all the press release and stuff talk about it's Tarantino-esque it's not um it's just a Takashi Miike film with lots of characters and subplots and Yakuza going on um although there is one fantastic performance hidden in the middle of it there's um there's this there's this um Caucasian Japanese girl I know that sounds a bit weird called Becky um she was born in Japan to American parents but she speaks fluent Japanese she just looks Caucasian she you know she's Japanese to every other um measure and all 10 or so years ago she was a big star in Japanese TV she would be guest starring on a on a lot of shows um and then she had an affair with a married actor and the country just turned against her as happens in Japan. Um, she's mm. now basically fam- one of these people that's famous for being famous. I think we've talked about it before in Japanese <laughs> culture. So the sort of person that goes on all the daytime chat shows who appears on all yeah. the game shows, that kind of thing. She's become one of them. She's kind of resurrected her career. She's in this film, which is the first time I've seen her in a film, honestly, for a decade. And she's fan bloody tastic <laughs> as this kind of unhinged person. Something happens to her early in the film. I mean, she's not a nice character, but something happens to her early in the film, and she wants to carry out her revenge. And she's just a fabulous unhinged creation. It's just wonderful to see her back again. Um, other than that, though, yeah, it, it's fine. It's absolutely fine. But it, it, it. The other note of interest: it's got the same screenwriter as wrote. An earlier Miko film, Bird People of China, which I know is a film probably we want to talk about as a, an incredibly atypical Miko film. This, on the other hand, is, I would say, a fairly typical modern era Miko film in that it's really, really well made. It's got some oddness and some strangeness about it, but it doesn't have that that special something that really makes me say, wow, that's wonderful, other than Becky's... um unhinged performance in it so yeah there's 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 two films i've watched of which i think will be of interest to both to you and our audience definitely so and i know you've been making little hot takes <laughs> this last week about uh parasite so i mean first of all i mean parasite we have got the noir cut which is coming out as well which kind of doesn't surprise me because whenever a film a, a, a film surprisingly makes a big impact. We always get the noir cut. We saw it with Fury Road. We saw it with Logan, and now we're obviously seeing it with Parasite. And I know that you said, obviously, having seen the film, that it didn't need a noir cut. I have no idea why anyone would do that. One of the best things about Parasite is its production design, its use of color. The it, it, it's absolutely critical. <laughs> to the story of the film um, yes. as, as is often case in Bong Joon-ho's films you know like, like Park Chan-wook is a very much a stylist um, I cannot understand I understand why Logan had a noir cut yeah I, I absolutely get that the starkness and, and, and so on and the fact that it was like a western 
so you know you you, you pull it back to like a 50s western um well, i'm not really sure why fury road did but it it seems to be a thing and i don't get it at all <laughs> obviously when they they did the the the, the similar sort of thing, didn't they, with Park Chan Wook's Sympathy for Lady Vengeance, where there was a cut where. Did it start in colour and drain to black and white, or was it the other way around? I'm not sure. I don't, I don't uh, remember that, mm. that cut. I know that with Fury Road, that the original concept that Miller had for the noir cut is that it was going to be in black and white, or I think it was black and chrome, the, as he called it. And. There was going to be no dialogue at all. So they would mute it down completely and just have the soundtrack. Which, with that film, I mean, that would be really interesting to see because there's so many moments in that film which are just pure art to watch. And they're certainly complemented by the uh, the Junkie XL soundtrack. Um, one scene in particular which sort of stood out is that whole truck chase with the motorbikes going and when he puts down the, um, the snowplow at the front to bring the sand up. That scene, just if you just left it, it's just a soundtrack would look absolutely stunning, and we have to like the fight scene. So that was like one of those rare exceptions I could understand the wild cut. The Logan noir cut just seemed that just because it they were doing something so different with the property, but yeah, with the parasite noir cut, it just feels like like you said it, it didn't make any sense even without having seen the film. Just why the film would be given such a treatment? There's certainly nothing from what I've seen of the. Bit um, sort of like the the best of year footage that's been floating around for the film that would really sort of indicate that it needs that sort of noir cut at all. No, I mean the the, the film the film has two two <coughs> things going for it. One is <coughs> um, what looks to be obviously it's all been translated, but quite sharp, witty dialogue. Um, yeah. and it's good thing it's incredibly well acted, but you know, sharp, witty dialogue that's kind of both pithy and pointing at pointing a finger at Korean culture, the haves and the haves-nots and that, and that kind of thing. But the other thing is is absolutely the production design, the colour, the the, 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 the the difference between where the poor family live and the rich family live, um, what they're dressing, what they what they wear, what they dress like. Um, there's a, the climactic scene, which again, I don't want to spoil anything, but there's a climactic scene where, where, where violence happens. It's absolutely reliant on lush artificial grass and the splatter of red blood on it um yeah. um, it it just doesn't make any sense to me (laughs) why why you do and work i mean there, there are there are probably 50 films released in last year that could have had some advantage from having a noir cut i don't know it seems a bit weird to me but yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, fine. And uh, what was the film that you said is better than Parasite? Because I know you were okay. Was it yeah, the Fox so family, was it? It's the Quiet Family. So oh, the Quiet Family. Quiet Family is nineteen ninety eight. Yeah, um, Kim Ji Woon, who's another one of these directors that that. that that's quite well thought of and has had his little jump into Hollywood with the uh, Schwarzenegger film. Um, so that's a black comedy about a poor family <laughs> <That's>, um, <laughs> that also stars Sang Kang Ho. Um, and to me, that's a much better film. And it was so good that our friend Takashi Miike remade it as The Happiness of the Categories. <coughs> but he did it in a rather different way. 
but yeah, I just thought that was a better film that had that was more entertaining, more clever, more um, more worthy of people's um, uh, undying love, which is what Parasite seems to have. But you know, I am I'm countering all this by saying yes, it's a really good film and it's fantastic, isn't it, that an Asian movie is getting um, that kind of recognition, but why it's only getting recognition in the best film category and not and the other category doesn't make a lot of sense um well, it's, especially when it's up for best when, foreign film and best film yeah but um but a lot of people are saying it's going to win best foreign film same as uh we saw with um roma i believe it was yeah um, yeah i mean and yeah, I, I and I get that. So it's almost as if they're giving it. A, it's never going to win the best film category. Well, it's not because we all know that either Joker or Nineteen Seventeen are going to win the best film. But um, probably Nineteen Seventeen. Really? Yeah, oh, I said the Irishman or uh, the Joker was going to win it. I think Nineteen Seventeen is made and released exactly to be an Oscar-winning film. Um, <laughs> it's think, rubbish. It's so bad. And I think the world will end if Joker wins it. The, the Twitter will burn down. But um, yeah, I, I'm sure. I'm sure it's just a, it's just a sympathy nod. It will win. Uh, well, I don't even think it's the best foreign film. Is Pain and Glory the mod of our film on the foreign film list? I think it is. I saw that the other day, and that's fan bloody tastic and i can see why antonio banderas has been nominated for a best actor award in that but um yeah i know i i'm really happy but i could name 50 films and probably three by this director that would have been more deserving of the nomination yeah it's it's always the way it's never the film that you need yeah to get recognized and i think it's all it's a lot to do with the current the current climate and popularity of foreign cinema, um, as well as the type of film it is, because when we look back, obviously, like to the let's say two thousand and one, when the real sort of boom in Asian cinema came through, and you had like the Vengeance trilogy come through, but the Vengeance trilogy is never going to win an Oscar because it's too violent, it's too grotesque, and there's all these sort of films that like come through, and they're either too artsy or out there. And they haven't got that sort of accessibility. And I think when it came to like Parasite, it's got that accessibility to people who don't tend to go to see foreign cinema. And at the um, same time, it's got the say the required level of uh, artistic merit to it that the Academy likes to uh, award their films. But as, as I said, I don't think it's going to win Best Film because it doesn't have any angry white male issues, which is <laughs> the key requirement. That's, um, that was a very good Saturday Night Live sketch last night that was on that. It was um, very good. I, was, <laughs> I, I called it this uh, afternoon. I was like, that's so funny. Yeah, just um, every film. And they didn't even include um, Ford versus Ferrari, which is similar as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, talking of like angry white male issues, um, Shell Factory are hinting that they're going to be releasing Carmen Rider. Um, the August Ragone, the the man, the legend himself, uh, hinted that he can either confirm nor deny, which seems to be a running theme that I see recently for people who are wanting to drop hints about what they've been working on, um, that um, that he's been been doing some work on the Carmen Rider. 
box set that they may or may not be putting out. So chances are that she's only going to be a Region 1 release. So uh, so guys, it looks like Region 2 is going to be passed over again for something else. And while we continue to wait for the Ultraman sets that we was, were apparently coming out in the UK as well, we're still waiting for those. So um, it seems that, yeah, it's, it's exciting if you're a Region 1 owner, but uh, sadly it doesn't seem to be uh, something that's going to be heading over here anytime soon. So, I mean, Stephen, I don't think that really matters to yourself. You're not uh, you're a common rider fan, are you? So. I could care less. <laughs> but, oh, okay. however, I want you to be happy. So, I br bring it out on Region 2, guys. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've got the camera set to distract me. So... That's that's I mean, it's not like if I didn't have that then you know perhaps we'd be a little more worked up but um I mean we've got we've got to do better than the one missed call trilogy box set which is coming out next <laughs> month next month I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm <You> know, <laughs> someone's gonna be excited about it. Well, I've gotta believe that if they put a box set out someone's gonna be happy about this. I mean, just, I mean I'm I I am wavering <laughs> over it, you know, it's a Takashi Miike one of the films and it's one I have got Actually, I'm not sure I have got it on DVD, thinking about it. I might have it on a VCD, so that's a rather expensive way of getting that, buying a box set of two other films, which are pants. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, uh, this week, we uh, bid a sad goodbye to uh, the legendary Nikatsu action star Joe Shesodom, who is a man with a 300-plus film legacy. Um, as well as uh, Star Branded to Kill, which, if you haven't seen Branded to Kill, you should definitely add it to your watch list because it's really absolutely fantastic film. But, um, yeah, a very sad loss uh, for fans of uh, fans of uh, Japanese crime drama, especially. Is uh, He's definitely a, an icon within these, within these films and someone whose filmography is one that's definitely worth exploring. There's, there's so much good stuff in there, so... Yeah, I mean, he's a, he was an icon of 60s, 70s um, Japanese cinema, really, isn't he? He's um, mm. uh, definitely one of the classic Yakuza actors, for sure. But not, not limited to that. Yeah, definitely so. I mean, I had an absolute blast when I looked at Brandy to Kill way back when I was doing the uh, MBDS showcase. So we did that in the Samurai with uh, Will the Explode and Helicopter. It's uh, it's such a quirky movie. I mean, this is a film with a hitman who's got a rice obsession, which I think says all you need to know about that film. Yeah, it's, I mean, to be fair, it's a film I was thinking about selecting at, well, for one of our um, choices this year. Um, and may, maybe it's more poignant that we do do that now, but we shall see. While we're obviously on talking about uh, Will Over Exploding Helicopter, though, I do have to uh, give him credit, though. He's actually beat us to another pick that um, I wanted to do, which is Mighty Peking Man for 1977. It's one of the Toho's exploitation movies, and um, he's recently covered it on his uh, most recent episode of the Exploding Helicopter podcast with uh, Nick Rehack on French Toast Sunday. So go give that a listen. Um, as. Mike B. Kim Man, it was released um, through Rolling Thunder Pictures, over, um, which is uh, how it first sort of came out, and it's since been picked up by one of the other labels, but it's definitely one that's really worth checking out. It's a fun King Kong rip-off and features uh, the title of the uh, gorilla giving uh, people the bird, which is always fun to see as well. But one of these Kaiju Christmases, I will swing the vote and get you people to vote for it, so... 
But you all want to like talk about Gamera movies or Godzilla movies or Mothra. More more ape exploitation, please. <laughs> um but yeah, that's uh, really everything that's been sort of happening at the moment uh, here. So um hopefully I'm going to be back on uh, track and get uh, some more stuff watched because I've got bits and pieces that um, I'm going to watch. It's just getting around to it at the moment, and you know, those that's the problem with foreign cinema is that if you're not in the right mindset for it, it can be a real detrimental experience. So it's a uh, it's a blessing the fact that we get to look at Asian cinema, but at the same time, it can be an absolute curse when you're not in the best mental state for it. So yeah, I mean, it is it, it is you know to watch things with subtitles, it is more tiring. It's 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 you can't just easily have it on in the background, can you? And uh, maybe give your brain, you know, give only sixty percent of your brain over to it. It's um, it does demand a much fuller attention span. Which, if you're not feeling right, mate, it ain't gonna happen. Uh, so uh, we will get that all corrected uh, by the next episode. Hopefully, I'll come back and have a. Big old list of stuff to discuss, and not just uh, <laughs> leave it on Stephen's. Uh. Well, normally, but, um, to be to be fair, mate, it's normally the other way round, and I haven't watched anything. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think without further ado, unless there's uh, anything else you want to discuss. No, let's go and have a, a bag of peppermint candies. <laughs> Tonight we're going to be talking about Peppermint Candy from 1999. Uh, this is a film directed by Lee Chang Dong, and uh, this is one of Stephen's picks. The film itself um, sees follows our main character Yong Ho, who, after wandering into a reunion of his old student group, decides that he's going to go and face a train head-on as he sets out to commit suicide on the nearby train tracks. Um, what follows, however, is a series of flashbacks as we go back in reverse order through the key moments in his life that led him to his current state of mind. Um, Stephen, as I said, this was one of your picks, and this is a film which won the South Korean Cinema's Industry Grand Bell Award for Best Film of 2000. Um, it also won awards at the Cavalry Very International Film Festival as well. Um, but what is it um, about this film that made you want to uh, discuss it this evening? Well, I've got to admit, it was a cinema shame. Um, okay. It was a film I'd never seen. Um, although it comes from a time when I was very much getting into, uh, especially Korean cinema, sort of 99, 2000. Um, there's a there's a there's a list of, of films that came out in that year in the following year that really were part of I mean I talked about it earlier the Hallyu the the Korean wave that initial wave of interest in Korean cinema and Korean films and Korean television shows and Korean culture in general which has had a second boost maybe in the last three or four years 
but you know this this is when you know, like um Ilmer came out and my sassy girl and save the green planet and and a whole bunch of films which which mean a lot to me but peppermint candy was one that i just didn't watch which is weird because the director sort of lee chang dong is is one of the the heavyweights I mean, he's such a heavyweight director. He was Minister of Culture in South Korea for a year. I mean, he's a, he's a he's 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 a big a big cheese. And some of his films, like Secret Sunshine, um, uh, uh, Why a Monster Boy, Poetry, Burning from last year, are are well regarded to be classics. But it always comes back to he's the guy that directed Peppermint Candy. I just don't know why I hadn't watched it. And I thought, you know what? Now's an opportunity to force myself to watch it, and I'll bring Elwood along this journey. Um, but it also, I I had an idea of what it was about, so I like the idea of the of the reverse structure. So I wanted to see how that played out, and I am one of those, you know, as you call me the professor, but I am a history nerd, and so it was, I, I was interested to see how it approached certain um, elements in South Korea's sort of recent history. That's why we chose it. Okay. Um, well, I think the best way to approach this chuckle fest is uh, <laughs> probably to probably to uh, go over the over the, the over the plot and just uh, we're just going to warn in advance. There's going to be some spoilers ahead, even though you can obviously get a breakdown of the plot and still enjoy this film. It's not like there's any big twists or anything like that in the film. And, and, and let's be honest, it's 21 years old. I think we're in. I don't think we can spoil it. You never know when it comes to foreign <laughs> cinema. What, what's filtered across at what point and, mm. and that. So. But, yeah, I mean, first of all, I mean... We start off with Yong Ho. I mean, he's there in his suit, and he initially wakes up like underneath the train tracks. So you get the feeling that he's been knocked off the train tracks, and um, or how he came to sort of end up end up there, where uh, he's sort of uh, been sleeping rough or not. It's not particularly sure, but he's once along the beach, and he ends up stumbling across this Riverside karaoke party being held by his old student group. Uh, that he sort of stumbles into, and nobody seems to make too much of a big deal of his sort of dishevelled state before he sort of like he uh, engages in some really shouty karaoke before wandering off to commit suicide on the train tracks. Which obviously they're all sort of watching, but they're, at the same time they're just carrying on with their little party, which I thought was real supportive of them. But well, they are they are uh, they are drunk as skunks. <laughs> <laughs> you probably don't really know what's going on, apart from the the one fellow, isn't it? That um, that sort of says, "Oh, what are you up to?" And then sort of witnesses the 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 final events of his life, the final event of his life, I suppose. But yeah, that that first that sort of first sequence, I really struggled with that. I couldn't understand what was going on. I, I just it was all a bit it was all, all a bit loose and a bit I didn't understand, and I felt really. Oh God, what have we done? <laughs> because I wasn't digging it at all, um, but I guess I was hoping that the rest of the film would make put some sense sense on it. Yeah, and it's really um, once we see him sort of screaming at the oncoming train. I don't know if he's going to run through the train or or what, but it's um, 
at this point we hit the first of our flashbacks. Now these flashbacks are all punctuated through train footage in which his if you're looking at it, it looks like the train's going forward, but it's actually being shown in reverse because when we look at the road and that, you've got cars and people yeah, going it's, backwards. It's not super clear to about the third time we do it where we see a girl and a boy and a bike running, going backwards, and suddenly you think, oh, right, that's going backwards, yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> it took me that you long. You didn't wonder why the car was like driving I all the way down the road I backwards. Did, I didn't really... It, twig I, it took me took me it took me about three trips on this on this train okay. back to the past that got it but yeah you're out you're right you know it's there all the time but um <laughs> but it's all very um it's all very sudden isn't it there's no there's no it's all very um inelegant <laughs> so it just cuts to the train and then i think there's is there some music is there like a theme or something i can't remember i mean there's some there's some light sort of elevators so music yeah. style music playing in the background but, it's but it's very you know cut Cut, cut to reverse train footage. Ten seconds. Cut now to now we're now we're yesterday or thirty years ago or twenty years ago. It's very um very much like that. Yeah, and the train in many ways it acts as our time machine between these periods. It's a real representation of just you know distance being travelled and we're on this continuous journey. And thankfully, it does also break it up by giving us little title cards that tell us which point we're stopping off at. So with the first flashback, we we start out, and it's a few days before he's chosen chosen to to kill himself. And at this point, he's still in a pretty scummy state. I mean, he's living in what seems to be a shack. Um, he's committing, planning to commit suicide, and at the same time, looking to buy a gun so that he can kill his either his ex-wife or his former business partner, both who've wronged him in some way. And it's at this point he finds out that um, a woman he knew from his past named Sun Im, who reappears frequently throughout these uh, stories, is in a comatose state in the hospital. And he goes to the hospital with the title of peppermint candies to pay her a visit. And I mean, at this point in the film, I was really sort of struggling with this film. I was sort of like, oh my God, is, is this what I'm going to have for like two hours? Um, to seeing this really raggedy ass man just like bringing me down like every scene every moment he's on the screen is just miserable it's like his life is just grey and it's just raining garbage on him it's just like there's no up and to his life this and we're 15 minutes in yeah <laughs> um again i i'm at this point in my first watch i am still struggling with this film I found I, uh, if I had a hard time connecting with the first sequence, this sequence, I'm I'm a I'm a bit in the same place as you, mate. I'm thinking, oh my god, this is miserable. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm 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 having Edward Yang flashbacks. Um, <laughs> I'm thinking, well, this is the thing. Uh, I'm watching this and going, God, this isn't fun at all. But at the same time, in my mind, I'm thinking, no, this is the sort of film that Stephen Stephen's probably watching. this going, yeah, this is really great. This is like uh, I'm, this is really insightful. And, I, and it's just me being like Mr. Lowbrow here that's not no, getting what's going on here. No, so. but so in the first, which I, I I am really struggling with this film at this point, and I'm thinking. I don't get, I don't, I don't get this. I don't understand what's going on. I don't understand how we've got here. And of course, that's the point. <laughs> it's that the, it, it, it won't make sense yet. Um, and I've got nothing to cling on to. I don't know who this woman is that's that, that's in the hospital. I don't know who this guy is. I don't know who this. Who, I understand this is the guy that's possibly killed himself fifteen minutes ago. But 
Um, there's like the weird bit where he gets the gun, isn't there? <laughs> Are you the guy from Seoul? Yes. Here's the gun. Show us the money. And it's just like weird. <laughs> and I'm and I'm and I'm just not connecting with any of it. And I'm thinking, oh god. But that's this section. <laughs> I know. And it's funny she obviously mentioned about him just going buying guns off random people because there seems to be numerous films within Asian cinema such as like Boiling Point to people just the whole f- film being just about them going to some random place to buy a gun to to get revenge on someone else. I mean, obviously in Boiling Point we got like the baseball player who goes to a military base in some other town mm. uh, just to buy a gun to take out the local Yakuza who've been harassing his team and um and you think, wow, this in, in Western summer you just couldn't really get away with a film just being about so little. Mm. Um so the fact that those elements are in it would sort of like really bring back sort of flashbacks to those sorts of movies. But we go back another flashback again once um once we have the this reunited between Sun Im and uh Yong Ho. And the next flashback, we're going five back, five years earlier now, and now he's a successful businessman. He's not living his life, a scummy life in a shack, and you know he lives quite a nice life, and he's a respectful businessman, and he's got an assistant and a wife who's cheating on him with his driving, a driving instructor. Yeah, and... so he's got a nice life apart from his wife cheating on with the driving instructor, but it's yeah. but it's all right because he's sleeping with the assistant. <laughs> <laughs> And he's the poster boy for passive aggressiveness. <laughs> you see what he, how he treats the guy that's sleeping with his wife. He's like all cuddles, and then suddenly he's slapping him around the head, then he's cuddling him again, slapping him around the head. It's all a bit, it's all a bit weird. But suddenly, I feel I feel a bit more at home now. I feel like it's oh, it's one of those kind of films, you know, where it's a it's a slice of life drama, and you know, people are being. Um, there's infidelities going on and it probably talks for a darker time in their life and then it does that dinner party that they're having with their friends including the girl he's sleeping with where he's fucking horrible to his wife (laughs) (laughs) and you think you think well i know know he's horrible to i guess he's been sleeping around but is this actually indicative of how he is all the time and that's maybe why she's gone and um also when we say driving instructor he was teaching her to reverse at speed around the mudflats. I mean, I'm not sure what South Korean driving tests are like, but I'm pretty certain that's not a key element you have to know about. <laughs> there's some there's some uh, states and states where all you have to do is just drive around the local church and you pass your test. Yeah, that's how my grandfather passed his driving test. He was in the RAF during the war, and all he had to do was drive, drive a, drive a vehicle round the airfield. So it literally all he had to do was turn right. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's a, but this this looks more fun. I mean, it looked fun, but uh, yeah, weird. But um, yeah, I mean, it's it's really bizarre because he's sort of like, as I said, he's just you think, oh, he's just a moment and sort of businessman, and he goes around to the house of the uh, driving instructor and he's there uh, beating him up he drags her out of the shower and he's slapping her about and you think oh wow he's he's been pushed to his breaking point and then you realize no he's shacking up with his assistant at the same time um and they're very blatant about it they're no not really particular sort of hiding to it they're seen out in public and mm. and whatnot and then we have that dinner party where he's mean to the dog as well oh god yeah he hates that dog <laughs> what? Um, Why and he just like, <coughs> he just ups and leaves his family. He does. And you're thinking, 
so it's so hard already to figure out what are we supposed to feel about this character i mean is it because with the first flashback it's like oh he's he's been wronged you know things have gone wrong mm. in his life that's why he's suicidal and then we realize no wait he was a bit of a dick and his before all that happened so yeah also also there's the other bit i forgot so he goes out for the meal with his mistress and he bumps into this guy and this guy goes, oh, it's you. Oh, yeah, hi. Yeah, And it's all a bit awkward, and you don't know what is going on here at all. And then they meet again in the um, urinal, don't they? And he sort of says, life is beautiful. And you're thinking, what the, what the hell is this about? But it's this is the point for me where the film started working, because it's the next flashback which explains that relationship. That suddenly, suddenly you start seeing what's being set up here and things get paid off later in the film you may disagree but uh, it's 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 okay. like i'm still i don't know how far in the film we are now but we're in our third flashback are we no yeah we're in the third flashback and now we go back to 1997 yeah. and, and this is the point where um, it starts working for me yeah and now young ho is a police officer and he's not just a police officer, he's a police officer with a tendency for, you know, brutally torturing suspects. Um, as we see him and his fellow officers basi- basically drowning some guy in a bathtub. But it's it's it's, um, it's 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 the guy, isn't it? Isn't it the guy he met, met has met at the um met at the uh, at the restaurant five years I later. Believe so. Yeah. Which, yeah, um, and that also explains the growling noise he makes to the man's son because that's his thing. Cause he's like a dog or something, isn't he? He's 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 not he's not just a torturer. He's the best. <laughs> he's <laughs> he's the best torturer the police have got. So, yeah, he's um... so so yeah. We've got the <laughs> we've got all this situation going on and at the same time. He's Trying to search for Sun M, who um, at this this point he's he's um, he's sort of like trying to take a break from this case he's working on to try and find him, and in in doing so he ends up in a one night stand with some woman who works in the local bar, which it was a scene which is just really bizarre, the fact that uh, he just walks in and like instantly seduces this woman. It made absolutely no sense whatsoever. Well, so. Especially as he seems <coughs> at no point in no point so far have we met a guy that's even vaguely likable, and he's <laughs> got this magnetic attraction. I mean, he's he's having sex all over the place with his wife, with his assistant, now with a stranger at the bar. I mean, he's got some kind of magnet, magnetic, uh, magnetic personality, hasn't he? As far as we can tell, because there's nothing about him that we have learnt from then until now that makes him a vaguely attractive person at all. Very strange. So, and um, yeah, it's it's so bizarre. I mean, the the fact he's like seen one moment he's going out getting drunk at the karaoke bar, and the next thing he's going in his drunken state to visit the suspect he was seen torturing previously, and it's it's some weird moments within this this film that never seems to like make particular sense. But the character Jung Ho in particular is so. It's so hard to get to like. I mean, the fact he's just so mean to everyone. He ignores his pregnant wife because he's too busy reading the paper, which seems to be a habit he develops quite early on because we see him doing oh. it in earlier flashbacks as well. He's just constantly reading the paper while eating and ignoring that's how he in his life. That's how he ignores people, isn't it? By 
burying herself pretending to read the paper. So, yeah, and I mean, this plot sequence with him as a police officer is the longest of the flashbacks, and it's for the most part it, it sort of makes sense. The fact that you know is this hardline police officer who, and I'm never sure that when we see like touch in these the these films and we see it in like Violent Cop and we see it in like Angel Cop, uh, where we see the police sort of resorting to these torture tactics, whether this is just something that's getting lost in translation acceptable to the police forces in these countries and because obviously if it was uh, something that the British police force was happening, you know, someone would have something to say about it. Yeah, so I think I'll probably talk about that in the next flashback because the 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 film is going to mean to you or I as British people, it's probably going to mean very little anything that's happened so far. But actually, this film is, and that's what possibly makes it hard to follow is um is that it's following certain events in South Korea's recent history, and so once you understand that South Korea at this time was basically under a military dictatorship and that the police force was a an extension of that that you start to see that whereas um, let's say like a Japanese film would have a respect for police people police people is that a thing? I don't know for, for, for people in the police force yeah and normally in Korean films with their Confucian society you would have thought that being a police officer would be something to be like a teacher or a civil servant you know they, they have a very hierarchical view of the world the, what the police were like during this period of Korean history um, was very much what we've seen here you know if you if you seem to be against the government you'd get arrested and you'd get beaten up and waterboarded and whatever else happened so I think that would resonate with a Korean audience of a certain age far more than it would resonate with you or I okay and I think that's made even clearer in the next flashback when he's starting as a policeman well that was the thing with the whole <coughs> with that particular flashback because the two flashbacks were so similar it was hard to sort of distinguish at which point his career was mm. um because, I mean, the whole flashback also ends with him attempting to ram-raid a restaurant on a bicycle, which was just really random, before he starts attacking his colleagues with a broom handle um, <laughs> yeah, that's, and shouting at them to, to invent, like, the sort of, like, trying to instill them, like, the military discipline that, um, assuming that, assuming that they're all ex-military uh, personnel. Yeah, so this, so this flashback basically starts right at his career of being a policeman um, shows his first interrogation which also has one of the grossest things I've ever seen where he makes the guy shit himself and it gets on his hands and he's like oh. and then we meet because we also meet the woman who we we now know is going to one day be his wife um, and she's all flirty and all after him and he really can't give a shit about her can he? <laughs> No, not at all. <laughs> um, and 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 then and then he does the interrogation, and then our old friend Sunim turns up, 
and starts, you know, she she wants to see him and she's you know, trying to reconnect with him. Oh, you know, I bought you a camera. I spent, oh, I spent all this money making a camera. It doesn't make any sense to us. But she does say, oh, but you're the guy I love because I like your hands. Of course, these hands have recently been covered with another man's feces because he was... <laughs> Well, we know what he was doing, but and so and so, but he's he's like completely broken. Um, so he's not just withdrawn at this point. He's he's snapped, hasn't he? What he's had to do earlier that day or earlier that week, whenever it was, he's completely snapped, and he's a complete arse to sun him. I mean, terribly so. And his future wife is a bit um inappropriate with i would say <laughs> but it but it gets us to a point where they are together and therefore starts making sense a little bit more you know we see that he was a bit weird but he had snapped and therefore when we see him later on he snapped and he's become the super the super cop guy because he's really lost it and we see that his relationship with his wife is broken at first principles um so yeah for me this is this this, i I see what you're saying because those two sequences are very much in the same world but i think they're at very different ends of his career yeah um the next one we got uh is takes us back to 1980 and uh, this is sees uh, Junk Ho now in his mandatory military service. At the same time, Sun Im is trying to visit him while he's being sent out to quell the. Um, I mean, is it a student movement? I mean, okay. What... So again, this is where knowing some Korean history helps. So this is very importantly May 1980, which is when the um, Gwangju uprising happened, which basically. As I said, Korea was under the the yoke of a um, South Korea was under the yoke of a uh, of a military junta, basically uh, 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 a dictatorship. Um, you know, we always think it's um, North Korea is the one which is the horrible regime. Well, believe it or not, South Korea after the Korean War was in quite a nasty place as well. Um, basically, um, there was protests going on. It's all very Tiananmen Square time. The government the local government but potentially on the um instructions of the president of the country sent in the army and the army opened fire on the students and the locals and lots of people were hurt and killed and this is known as the Gwangju massacre and it's like one of the touchstones of a korean cinema and when we talk about other other watching I'll um I'll bring some other films about it to the play. So whilst they don't go and um in this moment they don't go and reenact the whole of the the Gwangju massacre, they kind of play it out in a very small way where basically he accidentally kills a student girl. So it's it's a it's a is it a metaphor? Is it a metaphor for the Gwangju uprising? But it, it's very clearly in May 1980, and the police the 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 military have shot shot dead a, a student girl and again we see him at the beginning of the sequence you know, he's a bit of a bumbling moron isn't he <laughs> in yeah. doing his military service um not really geared up for what he's into um he gets shot by friendly fire very early on in 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 his first outing um which makes him a bit which is which has brought him to that point where he accidentally kills somebody um but now we see that he wasn't always a dick, and now we see what 
that moment of the where he was doing all the military service stuff at the end of the previous sequence how badly that's affected him um and this is where we start saying oh hang on a minute we're, we're here at Guangzhou for the for the massacre we're here during the um military dictatorship where the police were making people disappear and torturing people and we've seen the Asian financial crisis which is what driven him to be living in a by the side of the road poverty feeling everyone's ripped him off which then we see him leads him to his eventual suicide and this is the point where we kind of understand what the director's trying to say is is that the last 20 years have been fucking shit <laughs> and, and, and you can draw a line right back to 1980 when this pivotal event happened and it has scarred a whole generation of Koreans, or certainly a whole generation of Korean young men, um, of which um, Yong-ho is our exemplar of. But without that knowledge of those events, <laughs> you're just thinking... Oh, he not only is an arsehole, he's incredibly unlucky. <laughs> <laughs> it's. Yeah, it's. Um, it, it. I mean, this at this point, uh, I, I mean, as you said, I mean, this is when. This, this flashback is sort of the first point that we see him in some form of likeable representation, because the rest of the time he's just. He's the worst person. And it's it's here in this military service that we can see still has that innocence. Um, it's an innocence which is soon sort of lost by the time we end the flashback and he accidentally shoots a student. Which seems to be like a real breaking point. Is everything else that goes wrong, all his like life choices and stuff, can really still be traced back to this sort of accidental shooting that he commits. And. Um, it 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 doesn't it certainly doesn't do much of portraying him in, in much of a better light because he while he's obviously a, a slightly nicer person when we when we look at him in in the military service sort of sequence um, at the same time he's kind of a coward he comes off a very cowardly sort of figure and um, certainly there's like the, we do have the great scene here where he's sort of like oh I can't run my boots are full of water my boots mm. are full of water and then he takes his boots off and they're just full of blood because he's, he's been shot in the leg and hasn't quite realised it so yeah he's in shock isn't he and and yeah that 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 is that that is the best scene in the movie to me that um <laughs> that you, you think, oh, you, but but also if you remember at the end of the previous flashback when he puts Sun in back on the train. And you see him limping away. Yeah. And that, I don't know if we'd seen him limp previously. We probably have, but it's really pronounced in that scene. And now, and this is this is what the film's doing. It's, do, it's laying these little seeds that you see the genesis of in the next section. And things that don't, you know, and that that's, yeah, I, I'm pretty certain I know how you feel about this film. <laughs> to me, that's when it starts getting clever, when you start being able to, to unpick these moments that are happening later on in the film, although technically they're earlier on in his life. Yeah, and, um, and then really sort of the point is driven home when we got into the last flashback, which shows him as part of the same student group that we see at the start of the film, only this time they're obviously all young and wide-eyed and uh, full of youthful innocence. and It's at 
this point that uh, we see him and he meets Sanim for the first time and it's sort of like an interesting comparison of obviously when we look at him here and we look at where he is at sort of like the middle points of the film and where he's at the end points of the film and just seeing how this one person has been so twisted and broken by the events which happen over the course of his life so um so yeah i mean certainly as it actually sensitive it's a film which is constantly laying the seeds of the scenes which came before it so although, to that extent although did you feel the last scene wasn't real and that that it's got some very unusual dialogue in it such yeah. as the fact that he says he has he had this dream about yeah. being here before um because of, and it's hard. To... Yeah, because this this is basically what we've watched is his life flashing before his eyes. You know, the, the the classic thing that people say you see before you die. The how would anybody know? Because you'd be dead. But um, <laughs> it's it's, a, it's always felt a bit of a stupid saying. But that that that's where it is. But I do feel in that final moment where he is back, where he is in the present, just about to die. Is is that is that him actually remembering where he was safest? But that's actually not actually what happened and that's just him in the final moments of his moments microseconds of his life because he starts crying doesn't he and it's it just doesn't feel that that's like a documentary moment in his past but more that he's just somewhere and that's where he's gone back there to feel safe in a to die in a place where he maybe felt safest before I don't know there just seemed to be a little bit more going on in that scene that wasn't as straightforward as the other stuff we've seen. Yeah, and it's, I think because of how short it is, maybe they put it up to weren't thinking they were gonna pick people were gonna really sort of pick up on it as much mm. as, as you do. Um it's just sort of like an endpoint to the film, but I mean we it is the dialogue choices which certainly don't do it any help because it's almost as if you're watching someone who's either had a vision of the future to come or that they've somehow traveled, been traveling backwards mm. in, but he sort of goes, time. He goes, I've never been here before, but it's also familiar. I'm, I've been, you know, and he sort of recognizes the, the viaduct, doesn't uh, is it? A viaduct? Yeah, it's a viaduct with yeah. the trains going across. And he sort of says, oh, I've never been here before, so why do I recognize that? And it's all a bit weird, but um, I kind of, I think, I think I kind of get what's happening, but. Who knows? <laughs> so, yeah, that was a film. But <laughs> I've got a feeling you didn't like it, Elwood. <laughs> um, I'm not saying I didn't like it as such. I mean, this isn't like the Destroyers. Um, oh, the Terrorizers. Yeah. <laughs> terrorizers, even, sorry. <coughs> um, this isn't another Edward Yang experience. And is it, so it's. Maybe down to say that those two films are exactly the same, and that's why I didn't like them. My main issue with the film is a lot to do with the casting choices here, um, in particular the leading man here, uh, Soi Kang Yul, who did absolutely nothing for me. He's got very little charisma. He doesn't really engage me as the audience, especially as someone whose life I'm supposed to be following. He's just. Constantly, he's just like the worst kind of scumbag possible. Like, no matter what's going on in his life, even any time that we have any sort of redeeming moment with him, 
there's always like a moment around the just around the corner just to make me think, no, you're just saying they're still the same scumbag. You're not you're not the nice guy yet. I need to go back further to find out uh where that nice guy is because it's certainly not here. <laughs> so do you think it so 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 it's got a obviously the the it's got that stylistic choice of, of, of flashback followed by flashback followed by flashback followed yeah. by flashback. And that's not unknown it's not it's not unique to this film although i'm not quite sure i've seen it done quite like this um i've seen i've, um, I've seen films comprised of flashbacks with a with a I, so things like memento half the films in like a flashback isn't it which is done to obfuscate the mystery um and i've seen films which go to flashbacks but usually there's some kind of central um character who's sort of telling the story goes ah and then this time you know and 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 goes back to multiple flashbacks but with a central framing thing going on i've never seen it quite like this where it's it draws you back to these scenes and he is he's he's confused then he's an arsehole then he's a really big arsehole then he's a fucking arsehole and then actually well, you've got a little bit of sympathy for him but he did a shitty thing and then you think yeah. well he seems a bit soft and I'm not sure that progression when played backwards will ever endear you to the guy so even if you like the fellow at the very end sequence you think oh, no I think he's a bit soft <laughs> um, I, I don't think you ever connect with him like you should i'm not sure that's a i don't i'm not sure that's down to the to the actor i think that's just down to by playing the film back so what we're used to is seeing films where nice guys maybe get corrupted and we go on a journey to start off as nice and then and end up in their corruption um and maybe you say well i liked him then and then i can understand how he went there but this this says it's 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 a he's a pretty dark fella for nine tenths of this film, and I think yeah, it's it's hard to connect with him. Well, I'm, telling, I'm just been telling him where you've been to be there. Same, I'm just trying to think of other films which use the flashback narrative like this, and certainly, like you said already, there's normally the narration which ties it all together and. For, to the film's credit, I mean, it certainly goes back a lot further than other examples I can think of, which have used this method of filmmaking. I mean, the most obvious example being Irreversible. Yeah, so um, yeah, and Irreversible does it on purpose to make sure that that final moment of horrific sexual violence is not softened by what went before. It's irreversible. I mean, irreversible is unique in the fact it opens with a scene of extreme violence, and we flash back and we see another scene of extreme violence uh, with the rape of um, Monica Bellucci's mm. character, and we as we go back because it's constantly flashing back. It's almost like you're the film is rewinding to a point and then playing it forward and then it, we're going back rewinding further from the point we entered that so mm. you're constantly like flashing back like a couple of hours a couple of, um, not like whole years like we have here and with a reverse we obviously build up where we find out the the 
not only what caused this moment of violence that the film opened with, but we find out the life that these characters live, and we end up on this very sort of peaceful and tranquil moment, almost even a, a very sort of like nurturing moment that we end on, which is quite an interesting comparison to the moment that we're introduced on. Mm. Um, and it's one of those reasons why I always recommend Irreversible, even though it has got that extremely shocking and very realistic depiction uh, of rape. But as I said, if you're going to use that in your film, as we've discussed numerous times on the show, you've got to use it correctly. It's not something you can just use as a throwaway tool. It's got to be used with proper impact and presentation. It's not it's not something that can be used lightly in cinema. Mm. And I found that very few films used it correctly. Um or have directors who understand the impact of what they work with. And frankly, the film, this film doesn't use anything as, as graphic or as uh, heavy-handed. It's just using uh, the characters' choices um, as sort of like these key moments which have led to the the downfall in his, his life that they've all basically... As, he, as with the film point he's introduced, uh, he's introduced, he's basically now having to pay the piper, so to speak, mm. of the fact that all these past misdemeanors and what the film is basically trying to do is to pinpoint what those moments were and then goes back further still to show that, you know, there's a point where perhaps in a different track he would have lived a life where he doesn't end up killing and, himself. And I think what it does is i mean you 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 could talk about misdemeanors but i think i think what the film is really trying to say is that the country south korea has broken this person you know the 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 events which turned him into the person he became are not really choices that he's made um you know military service is it's conscription yeah they have to go and do military service and he was not trained he was not aware he was not supported enough you know in classic koreans you know i don't know if you've seen any films about korean schools or military so i mean remember the classic yeah (laughs) um yeah yeah it's all about corporal punishment and clips around the ear and kicking people and stuff like that that's how you teach people and that's how he was in the army you know so he made that choice he so he didn't make that choice he was just there and he and that event happened to him that's obviously scarred him um this mentioned that he'd worked in a factory for a bit and maybe had joined a union but then he's he, you know he's been some reason he's joined the police force but the police force yeah you know, he's he's clearly trying to make up for, or maybe maybe join the police force because he liked the discipline the army gave him some kind of discipline and structure even though something shitty happened that's that's all he that's what he could cope with him and then but but he he's forced to by his peers by the way the country is run to become a really hideous person even when he seems to have broken out of that and become a successful businessman he's stuck with that woman who his wife, you know, I'm not saying that his wife that's terrible, but you know that that wife that he has got is the wife he had, not because that's the wife he chose, but because of the situation he was in, forced him down that path. Clearly, we can see that Sunim is the girl that he should have been with. <coughs> but um, I just, I just wonder if it's really things that he did, or or what the director's really saying is that this country's been really shitty to our young men for the last twenty years, <laughs> and it's no wonder the country's in a mess. <laughs> Um, you can look at it either way. I yeah, mean, these are the, the things which happen to him are the result of the country's demands upon him. 
to the fact he's forced into going into military service. In turn, it instills in him this sort of idea that, you know, you have to conform, you have to live up to these sort of militaristic ideas of what masculinity is. And we see that this sort of, like, training, because, I mean, as I said, it's what's, what's the stint in the military is, what, like, 26 months or something? Uh, something like that, isn't it? That's that's what all the K-pop stars disappear for. <laughs> yeah, so it's going to be the sort of, like, training, and we see it in, like, Full Metal Jacket, sort of, like, you program a man to, to, to behave in a certain way, and it sticks with him. And we see that when situations overwhelm him, it's the programming that he reverts back to. Mm. Um, so this idea that you must conform, you must follow the chain of command. So we see him in the police force, and like his superiors and his fellow older officers, they're like beating suspects and stuff. So he's like, "Oh, this is what I must do. Uh, this is how, you know, I must follow in like this and, and carry on with this." And then he's obviously only add to his his already shitty sort of situation because he's been broken mentally by this accidental shooting with students he didn't want to kill anyone but he's ended up coming out of the out of the his military service with this death on his hands and his conscience especially and it's sort of like it's only sort of he's never really got over it so it's only added on to especially by the things which he's sort of encounters he goes on and it's really sort of between the military service and his time in the police force that sort of really sort of acts as the catalyst of everything that happens in his life really mm. um, anything else that's sort of added onto it is just sort of further bad badness that he creates out of his own also he has these moments to obviously have these connections with some men throughout the film and instead he goes off and has like and chooses uh, other women and dismisses her affection so by the time he finally does have the opportunity to reconnect to her, she's in a ca- she's in a coma. Just that, because life sucks. I mean, <laughs> I, I life mean, sucks, and then you face down a train. <laughs> yeah, I can think of better ways to kill oneself, but hey ho. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I I I actually I really struggled with the film for about half the length, and like I said, there was a moment. In ones when when suddenly something just clicked for me, and I actually ended up really enjoying it. And I loved what I loved was the little moments in preceding scenes that got their payoff in an earlier scene or a later yeah. scene. It's very I'm having a temporal meltdown here, but something would happen in a scene that would pay off in the next in the next sequence. And then I saw more and more of them. I actually watched it twice because it makes once you see where we're going with this, I think it's it's got. A lot going for it, and you pick up more detail and stuff like. That. Doesn't make it any more cheery, <laughs> believe you me. <laughs> um, but I really like, and and you could see, you know, this is a guy. This is his second film, the director's second film. The first film would like one, Greenfish, I think it's called something like that. I haven't seen it, but you know, it won a lot of awards. So this is one of the, it's one of those classic sophomore films that that always directors sometimes that quite often struggle with. Don't know they've had a, they've had a big hearty hit. What's the second film like? And there's a, the other the other scene which struck me was so it's in the um, he's in the and also everything's in the railways yeah when he shoots the student he's at a railway I, 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 that's that's another thing there's quite a lot of moments <laughs> around railways um, but when he first sees the student girl he sees her as son him and then she walks slowly towards him and then she goes into the shadow of one of the diesel locomotives 
and then she keeps on walking out and she's clearly someone else and obviously i know how that's done that's nice it's, it's just pick one person walks into shadow and the other one who is really there walks out but that's just really i thought that was fantastic and that's all done that's that's a that's literally a practical effect isn't it and i suddenly start i just started seeing that actually this guy knows what he is doing but i will say i am not convinced even though i enjoyed piecing it together i'm not convinced seeing the film in reverse and us spending an hour and a half before we saw a half decent version of the character was any way for us to get any empathy with the guy so you know i've talked i've I've talked a lot about you know oh it's korea's made him like this but at any point are you empathetic towards him not until 10 minutes before the end of the film and it's too late then it's a very difficult I mean, I, I, I would, I think it, it didn't help the fact that I've just been like watching so much nihilistic cinema when I get between <laughs> between these two films because I watched all of a sudden I was talk radio before I went into this, which is very nihilistic towards the Gosh, end of that yes, film. Yeah. So to go from that into this film, and I think I watched, I started watching um, Melacoma. Oh god! <laughs> uh, afterwards, because I because my Mumbai subscription was, I had Mumbai for seven days in it to watch this, and I was like, oh, what else you got? It's like, oh, Melikona. I haven't watched that, uh, which is Gus, which is um, Von Trier. Yes, with um, Kirsten Dunst, isn't it? Yes, exactly. Uh, which is a uh, wedding party at the end of the world. Yeah, so, so basically, this was the cheeriest film you've watched, because <laughs> if I remember talk so... talk radio, the Oliver Stone film, isn't it? Uh, yes, it's um, an awesome film. It's um, based on the Eric Bogosian yeah, stage play, stage and play, uh, yeah. he yeah. did the screenplay and he stars in it. And I love Bogosian. I'm a huge fan of him ever since I saw him in Unseized Two. Mm. Um, and I go back and forth for I, I, which is the better film for him, whether I prefer him in Unseized Two or I prefer him in Talk Radio because he's awesome in both. I mean, he is, um, he is awesome in Talk Radio, but it is a very dark film because actually he's a fairly unlikable character in that. But it's uh, yeah, I mean. In that film, him and he's he's an aggravator, mm. um, as he's a he's a talk radio host, and he's knows how to push people's buttons at the same time. And as the film progresses, these calls that he's taking are getting increasingly darker, and he's being harassed by neo Nazis and just basically uncovering the scum of humanity that have chosen to fall into his late night talk show that he hosts, mm. and. The whole time, especially when you get into like the final half hour, you're watching a man unravel his life. His whole life has basically been unraveling, and now his on air life is unraveling as well, which is the other thing sort of keeping him centered in the fact that he's just openly abusing everyone who phones oh. in. And it's just, uh, you're watching someone spiral out of control. And then we obviously go into this film, which is all like, oh, we're watching someone go and kill themselves <laughs> in the tracks, and then descend into increasing acts of scumminess before we find some kernel of goodness right at the the end of this film and it's brought to mind i mean uh one of my friends uh robert uh from over the escape hatch he said that because of obviously you know life being busy as many of our listeners will be able to relate with that if he can't get into a film really in the first 15 minutes so he's not really going to stick with it and i was thinking that if you watch this film and you give it only 15 minutes then you're really not going to get what this film is is aiming for no because it's a very slow burn it is and 
it's only really once you get past the first hour, it's sort of like done. It's like, oh, this is what we're doing with this film. And I mean, obviously, where you enjoyed it, I mean, I had my issues with the lead actor choices, so it really took away from my development. And I think perhaps if I come to it in a different sort of uh, a different sort of mental state, maybe mm. I would have enjoyed it more. It's hard to say, but for myself, I mean, this was a solid two point five. It was a two point five out of five. It was an adequate watch. See, it wasn't something I'm rushing back to, but yeah, I I I grew to love it, and it's made me think a bit. Um, I I, I think it's more of a three point five. Um, what I am surprised about is that it is so well considered. Um, did a bit of research, you know, and you ser- and 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 it's on a lot of people's best Korean film lists and things like that. Um. And I was really surprised at that. Um, I understand the importance of the director. I understand the importance of when this film came out. I even understand the historical context it's in. Um, and I really appreciate the art of it. You know, I really dug... It, it, I mean, I think I... I'm not convinced that's the best way to tell the story, but the way that it was done I thought was really good. But I think it... I just think we saw the goodness in the character far too late in the day and um although i only i did start connecting it about 40 45 minutes in i'm not going to pretend it's the greatest film of all time by any stretch of the imagination but I, i thought it was enjoyable it was a good experiment um I don't feel. Oh my God! Why didn't I watch that twenty years ago? <laughs> that's uh, <laughs> that that that's the key. I'm glad we watched it, and I'm glad we've seen it, and it and it made me think about things, um, and it got me got me looking at the old historical stuff again. So yeah, it, it gave me more than it took away, but yeah, I kind of I kind of get where you're coming from. Cool. Um, further watching. I mean, obviously, if you enjoyed this film or you want something to pair it with what would you recommend for the good people <laughs> the good people well so what i thought was originally i was going to say oh let's look at some other korean films from 1999 but i know that 1999 is a special year for you and i don't want to i don't want to bring them up but i would say attack the gas station and um memento mori are two films worth looking at if you want to see other films made in that year that will go on to have a big effect on Korean cinema moving forward. However, I thought that, I thought I'd bring the full professorship into play, and I've just picked three films which are about the um, the Gwangju Massacre, but in a more... Well, in, in various different ways. So the first one is... Um, what did I choose? Um, the 2007 film called oh, who's it by by kim ji-hoon called may the 18th which is basically a drama set on that day so you know it, it, it's a melodramatic drama action film basically saying what happened on that day um so uh, uh again as akin to a, a, a normal sort of any kind of reenactment film of a of anything like a bloody Sunday or something like that. It's that kind of film. Pretty good. Um, better is, and I've got to be careful, remember the A is A Taxi Driver, um, which is a film from a couple of years ago starring Song Kang Ho. So that's, that gets back to Parasite that way. Um, directed by a guy called Jang Hoon. Um, 
basically it's set on the day of the Guangzhou massacre. Song Kang Ho is a taxi driver who gives a lift to a German um, reporter who shouldn't be in South Korea reporting on things. Um, and it's a different look at the Guangzhou uprising. Um, and Song Kang-ho is flipping fantastic and it won a bunch of awards. And it's just a different way of looking at a very tragic event um, based on true story. And finally, a more fantastical one is one called 26 Years, which basically brings together five people who, um, 25 years after the event, feel that they were really hurt by the Guangzhou massacre. Either they lost family or, or well, actually, I think they all lost family. Um, and there are a bunch of people with very specific skills that get together to try and assassinate an unnamed person who they call him or something like that. Um, but he's meant to be the pre the guy who was um, President um, Chun Doo-hwan, who was the president at the time, who, who everyone blames for this. Um, so it's a kind of fantasy action, you know, on, on this... It didn't really happen, <laughs> but, but, but by people trying to take revenge on this and, and, and trying to basically um, do an assassination. So the three very different films, one sort of a, a dramatic retelling, one is an alternative telling of something that happened on the same day, and the other one's a, a fantasy one. So all very entertaining films, all about the same subject, um, and not, not, not too heavy on the... Uh, I didn't go any documentaries or anything about it, so they're entertaining as well. Cool. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm glad that uh, you got something to to pair with there. Certainly, attack the gas station is well worth hunting down. It seems to be one of those those films everyone talks about, but it never seems to actually have any sort of release over here, which is really frustrating. Yeah, there's that and and Guns and Talks. Those those are the two films from a, that sort of era that um never. I don't think either of them have ever been released over here, and they're they're they're, they're both very, very much part of this scene, these, these first films to really break out internationally. Yeah, it's um, certainly a film that I remember, like, way back, like, obviously back in 2001, it was, like, one of those films that everyone was sort of, like, really talking about, and you would have these, like, it was, it was such a weird time as well because they were basically just importing anything that they could get their hands on. And so as soon as like an actor or a director suddenly became like interesting, like Takashi Miike would like uh, we had like audition come over and we had their live and they through Tart and they were doing huge things. And then you suddenly had other labels bringing across things like Full Metal Yakuza and Food of the New Generation. And we have like Beat Takashi box sets with like Violent Cop and um, Boiling Point coming across and. There would be like no context for any of these films because they'd be like so unlike anything we've seen before. So um, I just remember Attack the Gas Station coming up in that sort of uh, same era. So definitely one worth checking out. Um, but that uh, brings us to the end of uh, another edition of the Asian Film Club. We hope you've enjoyed listening as always. If uh, you haven't done already, please do hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you happen to listen to us and maybe leave us a review of a uh, rating. It really helps raise the profile of the show. If you'd like to get involved, you can uh, also check out our Facebook page, uh, which is where we tend to post most of our 
bits and pieces we post news stories and updates and uh, it's a really fun community happening over there and some really good uh, interactions happening there and we have some good conversations about topics and things so definitely worth checking out we do also have the twitter which is at ac film club and we have the instagram as well and uh, you can also check out our blog uh, which has got our full archive of episodes as well as fun writing such as we've got steven's dark sides of asian cinema we've got uh, David Brooks, uh, movie vault. We've got the Asian, uh, the anime vault. We've got Ste- team member Steph and her mixtapes. So really exciting stuff happening over there as well. And you can check all that out at asiancinemafilmclub.wordpress.com. Um, so yeah, and, uh, it's obviously my pick for the next episode. And uh, Stephen, I think it's uh, time we looked at the cinema cool. Okay. In particular. In particular, we're going to be looking at the the cinema of Suzuki Sijin and his uh, 1966 film Tokyo Drifter. Okay, so you'll be glad to know. That's a more shame. So, really? Yeah. Um, so we we talked about about um, Seijin Suzuki earlier, didn't we? Um, in a, um, I think we did. In a, did you not do yes, Branded to Kill? Be... He did Branded to Kill, yeah. um, which was obviously one of the films that I had considered talking about. But at the same time, that I really want to talk about Tokyo Drifter, in particular because it's one of the more under-the-radar reference um, sort of inspirations for Kill Bill. Mm, absolutely. In particular, the uh, House of Blue Leaves sequence, um, which uh, Tarantino took some inspiration from this film, in particular art, um direction style that uh, this film follows but certainly Suzuki Sujin is a director I've wanted to cover for quite a while on the show and just never really managed to get it to line up uh, I think we said with certain other directors that we have keep saying we're going to cover but um, yeah I think Tokyo Drifter is going to be an interesting one to cover more so if you've not seen it before no absolutely so, the, the only film of his I've actually seen is his final film Princess Raccoon I own a copy of Branded to Kill and I've never watched it, or I've never got—I've never got through it. I think it's more the point. So I will be fascinated because he's an important voice in um, in in Japanese cinema. So challenge accepted. Fantastic. Um, so that's obviously what we we'll talk about in the next episode. Um, again, thank you everyone for listening. And Stephen, I believe you've got a new episode of Guillo Ramblings out. Is that correct? Um. Yes, I did. I have um, Mexico, um, uh, including uh, my look at Tigers Are Not Afraid, which I think is one of the most powerful films for a long, long time. So yes, please, please check that out. And um, you can also find me on, we just did our Oscars episode uh, in their own league, where I try and make a case for Joker, but it fails. So please listen to that as well. Okay. <laughs> I'm really interested to see that. I'm also really interested to hear you t- hear talk about Tokyo Not Afraid because that was only one of my favourite films of last year, and and uh, we d- we discussed it over in movies and tea where we're still in our angle season at the moment, and the next episode that we got going up as of the time of this recording will be our episode on Crouch Tiger Hidden Dragon. So yeah, no, no, t- t- Tigers are not afraid. It's a fantastic thing by a really interesting new Mexican voice. 
um, female director. Um, but I just, I was blown away by it. And uh, hilariously, you actually recommended it to me. <laughs> no, yeah, I'd been skirting around it and I got around to watching it and I was blown away enough to put it on the old podcast. So please, oh, please fantastic. go and listen. Cool. Um, but again, thank you everyone for listening. Thank you to my co Stephen. Pleasure as always, sir. And uh, we'll be back next time talking about Tokyo Drifter. Good night. Yo, Luna, no sabe.